Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Hey there. Ever wonder what happens to all those amazing screenplays that never make it to the big screen? Wonder no more. Welcome to Table Read Podcast, where we bring those undiscovered gems to life. Picture this, talented actors giving incredible performances with the occasional laugh or blooper thrown in, produced by award-winning pros. From drama to comedy, TV pilots to feature films, there's something for everyone. And guess what? We release new episodes every week, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Table Read Podcast, where great stories finally get their chance to shine. Realm presents Bullet Catcher, Season 1, Episode 9. 1. When we get back to Las Pistolas, I instruct the doorman not to let anyone up and lock myself away in my rooms. I'm covered in dust from the ride, but I can't bring myself to draw a bath. I sit in a chair with the curtains closed. All alone, out of the blinding desert light, free from the company of my brother and cloak. My mind turns to what life was like back at the orphanage, or in sand. How water was always at the forefront of everyone's thoughts, but how there was never enough to drink. It's like that all over the Southland. Promise a person enough water to drink for a day, a week, a lifetime, and then ask them for anything in return? and I doubt there's less than a handful of people alive who'd refuse. Why does Nico want the water so bad? To help more people than he harms? Or does he just want control? I stay locked up in my room for three days, refusing every summons and note from Nico. I need to be alone with my thoughts. Then, on the morning of the fourth day, I wake to find Nico sitting in the big chair in the corner, reading a book. Morning, he says. I wanted to see when you're coming out. I turn over on my side so I'm facing the wall, away from him. The wallpaper is a pattern of sun-bleached flowers. When I think of flowers, I think of the ones at the bruise that smelled of death and decay. I don't care for flowers. Nico comes around the bed and crouches in front of me. Brushing a strand of hair from my face, he says, The first time is always hard. We all deal with it in different ways. The first time I killed someone, I didn't speak for a long time. All I did was drink. After days of self-confinement, with my loneliness returning like a bad friend, 
That same loneliness I felt every day after Nico left me in the orphanage. I'm glad to have him close to me, despite everything. Tell me, I say, my throat sandpaper. Nico hands me a glass of water, but I push it away. It was a gunslinger, Nico says. I was still apprenticing under the bullet catcher at the time. The gunslinger was old and snake bit. Still, he recognized us bullet catchers easy enough. The gunslinger got me with a cheap shot. No warning. No calling out. He just drew and fired. Got me right in the gut. I thought I was going to die. I shot back, got him in the chest. More luck than anything. I wasn't even aiming. Just instinct. Desperation. I remember that the bullet catcher just stood and watched with his arms crossed. I must have passed out because the next thing I knew, I was in bed, bandaged up. On the nightstand there was a plate with a rusty looking bullet on it. As soon as my stomach could take it, I started drinking and didn't stop for the longest time. And the bullet catcher just watched me, like he was studying some strange animal. No words of advice, or encouragement, or sympathy. Nothing. I sit up against the headboard, looking at the glass of clean, cool water on the nightstand, wondering what town it came from, not wanting to think about it. The water doesn't seem like such a miracle anymore. Now when I try to drink, it tastes thick and metallic in my mouth. You're angry, he says. You feel like you've been robbed of something. But sometimes you have to give something up to gain something greater. What do you think I gained from killing someone? Nico takes my hand, looks me in the eye, and says, Now you know what you're made of. Now you know who you are. A murderer. A gunslinger. Your father's daughter. Before he left, Nico told me there was a celebration tonight for the new source of water. He called down to the lobby and asked a maid to come draw me a bath. It'll do you good, he said, and kissed me on the forehead. Now, I sit on the edge of the toilet, disheveled, my hair matted from sleeping and the dust from the ride. The maid sits on the lip of the bathtub, stirring the water and soap with her hand, making sure it doesn't get too hot. She turns to me and smiles shyly. It's wonderful, isn't it? She says. The water, I mean. I clear my throat. Yes, it is. Where I come from, we had plenty of water, so we were better off than most in Southland, I suppose. But we didn't have it piped right into our homes and heated like this. We had to go down to the river and it was always freezing, even if the mercury was popping. Where are you from? She shrugs. Nowhere special. A chill runs down my spine, remembering bad pines. She shuts off the tap and stands. If there'll be nothing else, miss? I shake my head, unwilling to look her in the face. She gives a small curtsy and leaves. I sit in the water, and it instantly darkens with the dirt covering my body. 
I don't feel like I'm coming clean at all. I bathe quickly, scrubbing away the dirt with a pumice stone, so hard I leave deep red welts all over my body. When I pull the plug, a track of dark mud layers the bottom of the tub, leading to the drain. Night falls. The celebration is getting into full swing. The streets are crowded and lit up with electric streetlights and torches. On the street, I pull my hat low over my face, flip up the collar of my coat and walk with my head down, my hands in my pockets. But I'm no longer the unnoticeable girl. Everyone recognizes me. It's not so late, but many of the gunslingers are already drunk. I'm accosted by a mass of people in the street who pat me on the back and shake my hand. Word of my saving Nico has spread, and everyone hails me as a hero. I've never experienced this kind of attention before, and I'm flustered and strangely gladdened to have so many people wishing me well, so many people noticing me. Gunslingers three times my age who bear their tattooed arms with sleeveless shirts and waistcoats tip their caps to me as I pass. The factory looms large in the dark. The smokestacks are like dormant volcanoes. There are no streetlights in this part of town, and the only person I've seen is the night watchman swinging his lamp down the pitch-dark street. I turn into the alley beside the building. There isn't a fire escape, and I can't find any doors left unlocked. But the factory is old, and there are plenty of places in the brick facade to get a hand and foothold. I rub some dirt on my hands and start scaling the wall. I roll onto the roof, breath heaving. The roof is flat, with vents and exhausts poking up here and there. In one corner stands an access door, but it too is locked. A large, paneled glass skylight seems to hold the only promise of entry. I crack one of the panes, reach inside, undo the latch, and flip open the skylight window. About 15 yards below, a metal catwalk extends across the large factory floor. I hold my breath and drop down. The catwalk shudders and rocks, but holds. Who's up there? A voice below calls out. A light arcs back and forth across the ceiling. I dart for the far end of the catwalk, away from the light. The catwalk splits into two paths. One leads down a metal stair into a small room like the foreman's office. The other leads straight ahead to a door in the wall that may lead away from the factory floor. I choose the latter, and thankfully, it's unlocked. Inside, the only light comes from the large, almost church-like windows that let in the moonlight. Below the catwalk is a large pool of black, lit here and there by the silver light. From behind me comes the sound of running feet along the catwalk. I dart, fast as I can, away from the door, running my hand along the guardrail so as not to fall. At the other end of the room, the catwalk descends a flight of stairs, and I take them all the way to the bottom. My eyes are beginning to adjust to the darkness, and now I see that this part of the factory is some sort of dormitory. Iron bunk beds fill the room from wall to wall. The door above opens and my pursuers enter onto the catwalk. I slide under one of the beds and do my best to quiet my breathing. Flashlights sweep across the floor. 
Then they are running again, across the catwalk and through another door to a different part of the factory. I take a deep breath and let it out. Suddenly, a head peeks down under the bed. He's a child, maybe not even ten. Who are you? He asks in a whisper. No one, go back to sleep. My name is Six. What kind of name is that? I growl, but the kid doesn't take the hint. They called me that because I was my parents' sixth kid. I thought maybe you were here to take me back to them. Then I stop and take a good look at him. He's one of the children who work in the factory during the day. That is what the dormitory is for, to house the child workers. Where's home? He shrugs. It's called Table Rock because it's up on a plateau. Did you have water there? Sure we had water. There was a river ran through the town and fell off the plateau in a waterfall. He stops and swallows. I miss it. How did you end up here? The gunslingers took me in after my parents went away. Went away? That's what my tia said anyway. She said that they had gone away, and she and my tío couldn't look after me, so I better go with the gunslingers. Then they brought me here, and I've been here ever since. I like a story that will take me to extremes. And nothing says extreme quite like The Last City, a new Wondery podcast available now. Set in 2072, the city of Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image, which, given its promise of being a miraculous green haven in a climate-ravaged world, shouldn't be too hard to sell, but things are not always as perfect and shiny as we'd like to believe. When she stumbles upon a dark secret that could lead to the downfall of Pura's existence if revealed, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Two. It's easier getting out of the factory than in. The guards follow the same path around the factory floor. I follow a few yards behind one of them, keeping to the shadows. 
And as soon as the exit is clear, I slide through and outside. The doors aren't locked from the inside. The night air is cutting, and I walk quickly away from the factories and back to the town center, where the celebration is still in full swing. The streets are crowded, but a sharp energy buzzes through the crowd now. Booze and guns are a dangerous mix, and a gunslinger party is easy to mistake for a riot. I make my way along Main Street toward Nico's club, among the guns igniting in the cold night air. There are no fireworks, just the constant popping of guns. Lowering my head, I make myself small and dart through the crowds. The entrance to the club is crowded with people, and when I finally push my way to the front, one of the guards tells me that Nico isn't inside, but that I may find him at the Screeching Owl, a saloon farther down Main Street. The Owl isn't just some dusty old drinking hole. The high vaulted ceiling is more akin to a church than a saloon. A gilded chandelier hangs in the middle of the room, giving off warm, electric light. When I've been here before, the room is usually filled with square tables with white tablecloths. The bartenders, done up in black suits, come right up to your table to take your order. They serve tea in beautifully painted teapots and little finger foods that are so good, you wonder why they don't make them bigger. Nico says that all the best restaurants in the Northland are like the Owl. Tonight, the gilded bar room has turned into a free-for-all. The gunslingers have climbed behind the bar and are serving themselves. They shoot holes in the ceiling and take pot shots at the light bulbs of the chandelier. The tables have all been pushed to the sides or upended to make room for dancing and fighting. Nico, done up to the nines in a bow tie and dress jacket, sits at a table with Cloak and a few of his other lieutenants. I think about that kid in the factory dorm, Six, his dirty face and small, scarred hands. I think about all the kids asleep right now, dreaming of home. If anyone can help them, it's me. But when I see Nico, I suddenly lose my nerve to confront him. I spot Hartwright and her gang of old-timers clutched around a table in the far corner. I zigzag across the mayhem over to them, and Hartwright finds an unbroken chair on its side and sets it right for me. She hands me a glass and I just hold it, taking the time to scan the bar. Shave away the bravado and recklessness, and the scene isn't much different than Dimitri's or any other drinking hole in the Southland. Maybe the gunslingers are a bit better fed, but they still have that hungry look of any Southlander. Their eyes are red and yellow and cloudy. Their skin is ashen. Dirt shakes from their hair and clothes. Their breath is acrid from snake bite. You saved Nico's life. You're the talk of the town, Hartwright says. Thanks, I guess. When I look at Hartwright, she grimaces, trying to smile. It doesn't change anything, you know. Hartwright grumbles and says, You're wrong there, youngin. Sure, doesn't change anything for us, our gang of old good-for-nothings, but for you. She trails off, 
Her eyes become sober and piercing. But for you, everything is different now. Your whole life just went upside down. How do you mean? Hartwright takes a swig from the bottle and clears her throat. I mean, once you know something, you can never unknow it. Once you do something, you can never undo it. You carry it with you forever. Like the first time you kill someone, I say, replaying the moment in my mind. You never forget, she says. She looks at the bottle like she's angry at it before taking another drink. Across the room, Nico sits against the wall, humoring some young drunk kid spitting into his ear. Look at that poor bastard, Hartwright says. The kid can't be much older than me. The hair on his chin looks like the shorn thread from an old quilt. His cheeks are clean and ruddy from snakebite. At first, Nico tries to nudge him away gently, nodding his head. But with each passing second, Nico's face grows darker. The boy leans on Nico's shoulder and doesn't stop talking. Hartwright shakes her head and watches. When Nico finally manages to push the boy away, the look he trails after him freezes me in my boots. It's the same look he had in Bad Pines when Jezik caught him in the arm with the knife. It's a ruthless look. The bullet catcher said that when Nico was his student, he taught him to be angry. And he is, though he tries his best to hide it. Now he watches as the boy weaves through the crowd back to the bar. Nico beckons to Cloak, who leans in close and listens as he whispers something in his ear. Cloak nods solemnly. He pushes his way through the crowd and hauls the boy out of the bar. The bottom falls out of my stomach. Whatever Nico has planned for the boy, it won't be good. I start to get up, but Hartwright puts her hand on my shoulder and pushes me back onto my seat. You don't want no part of that, youngin. Nico stands to leave, shaking hands, smiling. And that's when he sees me. He knows that I've seen everything. He nods at me like an admission, and I nod back. He waves for me to follow him outside. I knock back my drink. It lights a fire in my stomach. Godspeed, youngin, Hartwright says, and pours me another drink. I knock back that one, too, and follow Nico into the street. Nico waits for me outside the bar. Cloak is back at his side, but there's no sign of the boy anywhere. There's a splatter of red on Cloak's tie that he wipes at distractedly with a handkerchief. Enjoying the celebration? Nico asks. Not really. Cloak wets a corner of his handkerchief with his mouth and dabs at the stain. Nico clears his throat until Cloak stops and tucks the handkerchief into his coat sleeve. Nico smiles out of one side of his mouth and says, No, maybe it's not your kind of thing. He loosens the knot in his bow tie and undoes the top button of his shirt. Listen, Emma, whatever you saw in there, what happened to him? The kid who was bothering you? Nothing, Nico says. 
He had had a few too many, and I asked Cloak to put him in a buggy. And that's exactly what I did, adds Cloak, not trying to be convincing. I look away from them down the street. Perhaps I'm looking for where they may have dragged him into an alley to rough him up, or worse. But there's no sign of the kid, no heel marks in the sand. There are only the thousands of spent shell casings and boot prints running in every direction. I don't bother bringing up the orphans working the factory floor, or the vicious way Nico and Cloak got the water from Bad Pines. I don't bother asking about all the other towns they may have decimated. I know it'll do no good. I know that if it's change I want, it's change I'll have to make myself. The next morning, the light coming through the curtains is so bright I swear the sun is sitting right outside my window. The yellow heat vibrates behind my eyes. I sit up, and the room spins. After what happened last night, I resolved to do something about the orphans. But surrounded by all those gunslingers, I felt small, helpless. In the end, I went back into the owl and had a few more drinks with Hartwright. I remember Hartwright taking the bottle from my hands, then her leading me through the street and showing me to my door, then the elevator, Hartwright holding back my hair. And then... And then what? We were in the library looking at... I can't remember. I dissolve a couple tablets in a glass of water and drink. I drag myself to the library. There are books strewn everywhere. But the one I'm looking for stands out among the mess. The Atlas of the Southland lies on the floor, open to a page that's scribbled over in ink. There's a circle in one corner of the map and a line pointing to a name written in my handwriting. Table Rock. By the time I bathe and dress, the tablets have started to do their magic, and my headache has cleared. Las Pistolas looks a lot like I feel. The whole town is hungover and moving slowly. My first stop is the general store, where I acquire a bedroll and two days' supply of food and water enough for the journey to Table Rock and back again. My next stop is the stables, where I find no name. She pokes her head out of her stall, as if she'd been expecting me all along. I press my forehead against hers. Hi, girl. Hi, yourself. A cracked voice surprises me. I turn around and it's Hartwright, looking no worse for wear for what she drank last night. What are you doing here? She checks to make sure we're alone before answering. We're riding out to Table Rock together. Going to check to see what kind of shenanigans your brother has gone up to out there. You don't remember? No. She laughs. <laughs> you wouldn't shut up about it. The only way I got you home safe and sound was to promise to ride out with you. But you're a gunslinger. Gunslingers, bullet catchers... Those are just names. They ain't got nothing to do with right and wrong. We ride out at midday in the direction of Table Rock. It's a day's ride, and we'll get there sometime after midnight, Hartwright says. She looks 30 years younger astride her horse at full gallop. And for a moment, 
I see my father riding alongside her. Both of them young and mean. And then the vision is gone. The night is deep and cold. The ground has grown hard and hilly. Ragged grass grows out of the bronzed dirt and clumps. We rise over a bluff and there it is, table rock. The plateau towers over the basin. Hartwright pulls up and produces a pair of binoculars from her satchel. She points them toward the plateau and gives it a searching look. Long time since I've been out here, she says. Nice town. People are a little off. I suspect it's the altitude, but pleasant enough. She hands me the binoculars. I scan the plateau. There's the waterfall that Six told me about. From this distance, it's only a blue string of yarn falling into white mist. There's a switchback that climbs the side of the plateau to the top. That's where we gotta get to, Hartwright says. We'll ride into town tomorrow morning. Come on, I know the best place to camp. She kicks her horse and shoots off toward the plateau. We climb the switchback. It's slow and steep, but in the end it's worth it. A couple hours in, the switchback crosses behind the waterfall. There's an alcove cut into the rock face with stone benches and a fire pit. The mist wets the cave walls and makes the quartz glitter. We dismount and Hartwright gets to making the fire. I untether and lay out the bedrolls and feed and water the horses. I'm exhausted after the day's ride, but Hartwright seems ageless and full of energy. She cooks some beans in a can over the fire, whistling softly. Long time since I've been out on a ride, she says. I'd forgotten how much I missed it. Free from town and people and drink. Just like old times. Like when you used to ride with my father? A bit, she says. Those were hard times. Hard times for everyone. I poke at the fire. What happened to my father after he killed Andansa? We rode together for a time after that. But killing Andansa changed your father. He wasn't right after that. When he killed the bullet catcher, he killed a bit of himself, too. I know how he feels. Listen to me, youngin'. Every person with a soul feels how you do now, how your dad did then, when they do that kind of wrong. Growing up is understanding you can't take certain things back. What did my father do about it? At first, it made him mean. When I couldn't put up with him any longer, we parted ways. I didn't see him for a long time after that. Until after Nico was born. Was he still mean then? She smiles. Far from it. The opposite, in fact. I seldom have met a person as kind as the man your father became. How did he do it? I'm only speculating here, but I think it had to do with your mother. 
and then with Nico, and later with you. The sun shines through the falling water, turning the inside of the cave into a blue prism of light. I wake up in wonder, with Hartwright's words still swimming in my head. Hartwright is already wide awake and making breakfast, leftover beans and toast. We rise over the edge of the plateau while it's still early. The sun shines on the buildings of Table Rock. But I can tell straight off that something isn't right. Cartwright must sense it too because she unholsters one of her shooters and holds it low, ready for any surprises. We dismount outside of town and walk our horses in. The streets and buildings seem empty. There's not a sound but of the rushing water and the wind. On the road is a telltale gunslinger caravan, half unloaded of the pumping machinery and metal pipes. It looks like they got partway through and... Something stopped them. There are voices, faint at first, but louder as we draw closer to the center of town. Two of them, no, three, coming from the saloon. Hartwright climbs the boardwalk, walking softly in her boots. The batwing doors are open. At the threshold, with her gun drawn, she quickly looks inside. Who is it, I whisper. Gunslingers, she says and holsters her gun. Hail, she calls out. The voices go quiet. From inside come the screeching sounds of the chairs being pushed back quickly. Who goes there? One of them calls out. I'm Hartwright, a gunslinger. You got proof? I got my gun and the tattoos. Stand in the doorway. Your guns best be in their holsters. She does as she's told, with her hands in the air. I can hear one of the gunslingers approaching, their boots and spurs clicking. I got another one out here, Hartwright says. She's a trainee. Tell her to show herself. Hartwright beckons for me and I step into the doorway with my hands up. The gunslinger approaches cautiously with her shooter drawn. When she gets close enough to poke us with the end of it, she says to Hartwright, Okay, old timer, show me those tats. Slowly, Hartwright pushes up her sleeves. The gunslinger's eyes go big. God damn, she says. You must have been smack dab in the middle of the fighting. That's right. From farther back in the bar comes the voice of another gunslinger. Who's there, Mary? They're gunslingers, all right, she calls back. An old-timer and a young'un. (laughs) Then she turns back to Hartwright and says, Come in and have a drink. You can tell us all about killing bullet catchers. The saloon is a wide-open room with a stair that heads up to a second level where there are rooms to rent. We sit around a table with two of the gunslingers. A third stands behind the bar, playing bartender. Despite the early hour, they look and smell like they've been drinking through the night. The one who showed us in looks the most clear-eyed, but even she's leaning hard against the table for balance. She pours heart right on me shots of snakebite. Go on, then, she says. 
tell us all about the bullet catchers you killed. First, I want to know what happened here. Where are all the people? She leans back in her chair and studies Hartwright. Now, what makes you interested in a thing like that? I was sent by Bullet to check on your progress. There ain't been no progress, the other one at the table slurs. As you can plainly see. Why not? Don't have the manpower, do we? He says. So, like I asked, where is everyone? Dead. The one behind the bar speaks for the first time. I pin him for the leader. He's a mean-looking gunslinger, covered in angry scars and tattoos. How'd that happen? We killed them, the gunslinger behind the bar says. His coolness makes me twitch with anger, and he must sense it because he leans on the bar and fixes me with a dead-eyed expression. They were useless. They were weak. It was a relief when we killed the last one. How many? I try to mirror his tone, but my voice comes out shaky. Enough that there was no point counting. He takes a shot of snakebite. The air is tense in the room. The sounds of laughter and screaming break the silence. One of the doors up above swings open and a fourth gunslinger lurches out, a woman clutched in his arms. Her clothes are ripped and her nose is bloody. She's crying. He's laughing. Then he sees us and straightens himself. And the person he's with is no woman, but a girl, young and terrified and beaten. He kicks her back into the room. Clean yourself up, cow, he yells at her and pulls the door closed with a bang. I jolt upright, quick enough that the gunslingers draw their guns and point them at me. You got a problem, kid, says the one behind the bar. Emma, you're about to get a shot, Hartwright says matter-of-factly. So, kid, what is it? You got a problem or not? Yeah, I say. I got a big problem. Then so do we, says the gunslinger behind the bar. I watch him aim. I trace the line from the barrel of his gun to my heart. I feel him squeeze the trigger. I see it all happening before it's happening. I reach out and whoop. The air is pushed out of my lungs. The force of the blow staggers me backward. For a moment, everything is still. And in that moment, I draw my gun and shoot from the hip. The gunslinger behind the bar is thrown back against the bottles and everything comes down in a crash of broken glass. Hartwright's gun is back in her hand. She slaps the hammer twice and the gunslingers seated at the table are blown backward over their chairs. The one up above takes off across the landing. Hartwright raises her pistol and takes a couple shots, splintering the banister and puncturing the wallpaper by the running man's head. He leaps through the open window onto the roof. His footsteps stumble over the eaves. Then we hear him drop to the ground and take off running. Gun still in my hand, I approach the bar carefully. The gunslinger lies slumped in a pool of spilled snake bite and blood. His gun is in his hand, but I can tell he doesn't have the strength to raise it. His eyes are big with fear. 
I holster my gun and hold out my closed fist in front of his face. Blood drips between my clenched fingers. I open my fist and show him the bullet. Then I let it slide off my palm in a stream of blood and onto his lap. Bullet catcher, he says, and then the light goes out of his eyes. When I look up, Hartwright is staring at me. I can explain. Let's check on the girl first, she says. Maybe not everyone's as dead as they said they were. The girl is pale white with fear. She sees our guns and doesn't trust us. She thinks we're there to hurt her like the gunslingers. But when we finally coax her from the room and she sees the gunslingers lying dead, she throws her arms around me and says, Thank you. Hartwright wraps her in a sheet from a bed in the room and then goes off to look for others. I sit with the girl at a table in the saloon. She cups a mug of coffee in her hands and stays silent, and I don't make her talk. I distractedly wrap my hand in a bandage. Only now does it occur to me what I've done. Forever, it seemed, all I thought or did or practiced was bullet catching, and it feels like forever since I'd thought about it. But there it was, waiting for me when I needed it. When it was happening, I didn't think. I knew he would shoot, and I knew I'd catch the bullet. Hartwright enters through the bat wings with some 30 people in tow behind her. Do you see your people? I ask the girl. She shakes her head. I have none. The villagers gather around the table. They look at the dead gunslingers one by one, as if they don't believe they could be killed like any normal person. A woman steps forward from the crowd and reaches out and takes my hand in hers. She kisses it and says, We knew the bullet catchers would return one day. We knew. We just knew. As gracious as I can, I unclench the woman's hands from my own. Do any of you know a boy named Six? He's 10, maybe 11 years old? I know him the girl says. She pulls the sheet tightly around her. We were playmates. What happened? Another person from the crowd pipes up. When the gunslingers first came, we didn't want to deal with them. Our families fought against them. He trails off before gathering himself again. They made... examples. Many were killed, and the children of the people they killed were taken. The boy you mentioned, Six, his family numbered among the dead. They took him. They took most of the children we didn't manage to hide. A couple of the villagers tell us that they'll look after the girl, and we let them take her. We stay the night in one of the rooms above the saloon, and the next morning we rise early to leave. Nearing the pass to the switchback that will lead us down the side of the plateau, we turn to take one last look at the town. A fire rages, the never-assembled water pump. The people are up early, burying their many dead. They'd been unable to do so during the occupation. Above the town, the sun rises. Can we go on doing this in every town? What would be the use of bringing Six back here, even if I could? What kind of life would he have? 
Would it be better or worse than what he has now? I don't have the answers. Hartwright has been mostly silent since she saw me catch a bullet. And I'm afraid of what might be going through her head. I think of her arms, lined with the tattoos of slain bullet catchers. I don't know what side I'm on. I don't know what side she's on either. As if sensing my thoughts, she nudges my leg with the tip of her boot. I'm sorry. I should have told you about bullet catching. It shows prudence that you didn't. Me being a gunslinger, how would you have known I wouldn't just put a bullet in you myself? So you won't? Once upon a time, maybe. But like I said, I stopped believing in sides a long time ago. The only thing that matters to me now is what's right and what ain't. We descend the switchbacks, taking it slow. We're tired and wouldn't be heading back at all if we didn't think Nico would start wondering where I'd gotten to sooner rather than later. We cross beneath the waterfall. It's dark with only the faint hint of blue light glittering on the rock side. I reach out and run my fingers through the cool, falling water. Hold it right there, a voice growls from the shadows. The gunslinger from last night emerges from the darkness. Blue light plays on his dusty face. His gun is in his hand, pointed at Hartwright. Throw down your guns. Get off your horses. We do what he says. We have no other choice. We stand before him with our hands up. Turn around. Get on your knees. Wait a sec. Hartwright begins, and the gunslinger hits her in the jaw with his gun. I catch her as she's falling. Sorry, youngin', she says to me. I try to think of something comforting to say. I try to think of a way out of this, but nothing comes to mind. My heart races. I ain't asking again. Turn round, on your knees. This time we do it, slowly, dragging out the moment. Then comes the click of the gunslinger pulling the hammer back. The sound of an approaching horse clopping up the switchback makes him pause. A man in a wide hat and threadbare poncho emerges around the bend, leading his horse by the reins. Better get, old timer, the gunslinger growls at the stranger. The stranger looks up at the gunslinger from beneath his big hat. Don't reckon I will, gunslinger. The gunslinger smirks and, without hesitation, shoots the stranger. The man hardly flinches. Then he reaches out his hand and tosses the bullet on the ground between them. My mouth goes dry. It can't be. I'll extend you the same offer you did me. Leave now, and I won't kill you. But this time, the gunslinger has no intention of running. He slaps the hammer, letting off two shots in less than a second. The stranger comes to life, spinning around quick as the wind. He dodges the first shot before catching the second and bending it around to find the shooter. The gunslinger lets out a short yelp. Then his knees buckle, and he falls down, dead. I stand slowly. Bully catcher, I whisper. 
He removes his hat, showing me his eyes like the moon in the daylight, his scars running every which way, his wispy hair matted to his brow with sweat. Hello, cub. You're listening to Bullet Catcher Season 1 by Joaquin Lowe. Reduced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hello, friends. This is Mark Nell, executive producer of the Table Read podcast, where imagination meets performance. As we wrap up an incredible season one, we want to take a moment to express our heartfelt gratitude to each and every one of you who tuned in and supported us on this amazing journey. Season one was nothing short of extraordinary. We delved into captivating scripts that transported us to worlds beyond our imagination, thanks to the brilliant writers who delivered these works. But what really brought these stories to life were the talents of our amazing actors. But Wait, the excitement doesn't end there. As we bid farewell to season one, we are thrilled to announce the launch of season two. Get ready for more gripping narratives, more unforgettable characters, and more mesmerizing performances that will keep you on the edge of your seat. We have some big surprises coming. The Force will definitely be with you. So stay tuned, stay engaged, and most importantly, stay excited. From all of us at the Table Read Podcast, thank you. And let's make season two even more memorable together. Catcher is written by Joaquin Lowe, produced by Lydia Shama, and executive produced by Julian Yap and Molly Barton, performed by Inez Del Castillo, audio produced, directed, and designed by Amanda Rose Smith, additional editing by Corey Barton, original theme composed by Hashem Asadolahi, with performances by Justin Morell and Josh Deutsch, cover art by Christine Barcelona.